Welcome to season three of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. My name is Amy Wheeler and I'm your host. We are so happy to tell you all that's happening in the world of yoga therapy. And we love to find guests from all over the world so that we can share and learn and grow together. Some of the things that are happening in season three that we find so exciting is that not only are we continuing with the free gift that we are giving out every single week in season two, and you can see more about that in the show notes, but now we are adding a YouTube channel and you can see all of these podcasts on video. The YouTube channel is called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. Some people like to watch video maybe you want to use it for one of your trainings these videos on youtube will be there for you to use for free we would love your support we have opened up a patreon page that is going to help the podcast flourish and grow you can help us to expand and grow and create more content for you and we'd love for you to visit the patreon page which is called optimal state and yoga therapy hour podcast so let's go into our guest today and please nourish yourself take time for yourself and really relax into listening to the podcast welcome today i have two guests from the uk ranju roy and david charlton and I've been admiring their work for several years since they came out with a book on the Yoga Sutra called Embodying the Yoga Sutra, Support, Direction, and Space. And many of you know that I love to look at everything through the lens of the gunas and especially yoga therapy from the perspective of the practitioner as well as the client and the relationship between the two. I love expanding upon that framework as the primary way in yoga therapy of assessment and developing a therapeutic care plan. So when I came upon this book that was a very practical guide to taking certain yoga sutras and showing how the gunas play through and can help us create a framework for health, healing, and beyond. I was so excited. I didn't know that a book like this existed that was so practical that pretty much I could give to my yoga therapy students in the Optimal State Yoga Therapy School and say, this is it. This is your guide. When you have a doubt, go to this book. And I, I had never even heard of Ranju or, or Dave before this. So it was so shocking to see someone from across the world that had very similar ideas. It felt almost like the hundredth monkey effect where 99 monkeys were, were discovering bananas all over the world. And then boom, that hundredth monkey tried the banana and there seemed to be some consciousness where all the monkeys in the world started eating bananas. It felt a little bit like that. So that's number one. I really highly recommend that if you're into yoga and or yoga therapy, you, you should try this book called Embodying the Yoga Sutra, Support, Direction, and Space. And of course, support is referring to the guna of tamas. Direction is referring to the guna of rajas. And space is referring to the guna of sattva. But 
what really was interesting about this conversation to me is is something that I think a lot of us have had to think really deeply about, and that is being dedicated to a particular tradition, whether that's Iyengar tradition or Kundalini tradition, or maybe you're a yin yoga person or a Krishnamacharya person. It just so happens that Ranju and Dave and I are all in the Krishnamacharya tradition for, for several decades now. But I think even in hearing our discussion, you could apply that to any tradition. And that is this kind of tapas that you feel between learning the framework of this tradition, experiencing it, deciding if it is true for you, if if the teachings that you're trying from this particular viewpoint or paradigm really work for you. And then within that structure, let's pretend it does work like it did for Ranju and Dave and I in the in the Krishnamacharya tradition, where's the spaciousness within that? Where is the sovereign self within that. As Dave says at one point in their interview, we get to grow up and be who we are and not just bow down to the tradition. And so that tapas of, I really love this tradition. I'm dedicated to it. Here's the reasons why it's working for me. Here's the essence of the teachings that I really love. And I actually am a a Western person, right? Dave is Dave and Ranju are are from the West, so am I. And there's a point where you grow up and you say, this is me, this is who I am, this is how I need to show up in the world, and I can't just be a cookie cutter of all the other people that went through these teachings within a tradition. And I think that takes great mental, emotional, and spiritual maturity to kind of hold those two things in juxtaposition and to walk that thin line where you're not being abused, you're not just buying into the dogma, you're not just wearing the outfit that everybody else is wearing, you're not just doing the chant because that's what everybody else does. You're actually taking the structure that your tradition has offered to you as a way to embody the teachings and figure out what is right for you in this life. And I think that's what the teachings are here to help us with, but a lot of times we get lost in the dogma, or we feel like we don't want to be part of any structure at all. We want total freedom. And therefore we can't even dig deeply into the the teachings of a particular tradition because that could end up being painful. So what I appreciated about Dave and Ranju's talk was that it's clear to me they're, they're walking that thin line constantly checking in and determining where the teachings and the teacher and the sangha are helpful and where it's not helpful and where do they need to draw the line and say, no, that's not happening. (laughs) So I found it to be a very subtle conversation. I hope it's not too subtle for, for many of you. And I think hopefully many of you will be able to relate to this idea of using the teachings to say, who am I? Why am I here? What are my gifts? What are my challenges? How do I want to be in the world without giving away yourself to a tradition, but also understanding that a free-for-all isn't necessarily going to get us where we want to go either. So I welcome you to Ranju Roy and David Charlton. 
and let's get into this conversation. I would like to welcome Ranju Roy and Dave Charlton. Thank you both for being on the podcast on really short notice. It's an absolute pleasure. It is. Yeah. Very excited. Ranju, where are you joining us from today? So I am in the southwest of England in Somerset, which everybody drives through to go to Cornwall and Devon, but it's absolutely beautiful down here. It's really lovely on the route down to that bottom corner of, of England. <laughs> and how about you, Dave? I'm in the west of England, so a little bit higher up than, than Ranji, as it were. I'm in Great Malvern, which is near Worcester, and that's heading out towards the, the Welsh border. Mm. Well, I am in Southern California, and we're about eight hours different. So it's it's actually eight o'clock in the evening for you both. And I just want to yeah. thank you for staying up to talk to me, especially after hearing that about half an hour ago, you finished kind of a, a maybe a book club going over one of the chapters in, I'm going to say it out loud, my favorite yoga sutra book. It is called Embodying the Yoga Sutra. And I don't say that lightly because I have like 32 of them. But okay, when yeah. I read this book, I immediately contacted Ranchu and said, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And the thing that I think is so amazing about it is it is the perfect yoga sutra book, in my opinion, as it applies to yoga therapy versus a lot of other books tend to go of more of a classical view of yoga where it's about enlightenment. And, and I just feel like your, your book is much more for the embodied student. So what was, what was your conception when you came together to write this amazing book? Well, the book has come out of a lot of teacher training that we, Dave and I have done, and also courses specifically on the Yoga Sutra. And during the time that we've worked together, I suppose one of the things that I really loved about the way we were taught with Jessica Jar is its practicality. And so the mm. teachers that we worked with, Paul Harvey and Peter Hersnack, two, two of Jessica Jar's older students, and Jessica Jar himself, the studying that we did on the Yoga Sutra was just not abstract. It wasn't abstract. And, and it, being grounded in tangible, applicable philosophy, which is tangible and, and, and teachable and relatable to, made it look... I remember Deskacha saying, or may, maybe it was Paul, I can't remember, but somebody saying, you know, reading the way he's written it or talks about it, it's as if it's a contemporary text on psychology. It's not an old text from a different era and i think that was our concern to try and convey the wisdom of the yoga sutra in a very very contemporary but not taking liberties because i think you can take yeah. you can do yeah. we were very careful to explain the sanskrit derivation of each of the words that we were using and where we did I wouldn't say put a spin on it, but, you know, where we did say you could look at it like this or you could look at it like this or we can do it like this, we tried to be very transparent and saying this is how we understand this. And maybe some other commentators might interpret it in different ways. So we weren't trying to make a definitive yoga sutra 
textbook, but what we were trying to do is to take specific sutras and then show how tracing the etymology of the words and tracing the sutra, we can move from two millennia ago into contemporary times and still make them applicable and useful. Hmm. Dave, do you want to yeah. add anything to that? Yeah, I think what Ranjit says is really important is, is that we have tried to make it clear what, what we understand the original text to be and, and more of the original context in terms of, for example, some of the commentaries, but also how we can apply it and how, you know, in order to apply it, we, we do take a few liberties here and there. And I think that really has come from Peter Hersnack because really in, in the way that he applied the Yoga Sutra, we, we've kind of picked up that view. A lot of the ideas in there, if I'm if I'm honest, have come from him. You know, we've done our best to, to express them. So it's it's kind of a reflection of how we understand the, the text to be and also how it's applied within this tradition and also some of Peter's perspectives also, which, which we value very much, actually, mm-hmm. and which particularly spoke to us. I think when we met Peter and, and were exposed to his take on things, he opened the Yoga Sutra up a lot. Mm-hmm. And an example of that is the subtitle of the book, isn't it? Which yeah, is, it is support, direction, space, which sounds like three nice words, support, direction, and space. But those three words are the master key to the whole text because actually those three words are code for the three guna, That's tamas, right. rajas, and sattva, support, direction space so really it's about how do we work with with the guna with the rajas tamas and sattva in an intelligent way to bring us to a state of yoga yeah well of of course that's why i loved it because in my mind and i know there's many ways to practice yoga therapy and yoga but in my mind it's just such an amazing tool to have that guna lens to look at our clients, look at our lives for health, healing, and beyond. So I think that's why this became my favorite Yoga Sutra book, because it's through the lens of the gunas Mm -hmm. and really expanded upon in a very Desikacharian way. Mm -hmm. So let's just start from the beginning. I would like to hear each of your definitions of what is yoga therapy? Because I think, first of all, that is defined so broadly and different traditions, different teachers have very expansive definitions. What is, Ranju, what is your definition of yoga therapy? (laughs) Well, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the way we were originally taught, which was that you could think of Krishnamacharya's approach to yoga as being split into shikshanakrama, rakshanakrama, and chikitsa krama. And that the idea there is that there is a certain type of yoga which is not therapeutic. And I'm going to put that in inverted commas, not mm. therapeutic. That's the shikshana one. Then there's the rakshana one, which is it kind of keeps you topped up. It's 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 not exactly addressing specific issues, but it's it's keeping you well. And then there's Chikitsa, and chikitsa is a word from Ayurveda, which kind of means therapy. And so when yoga is used as a chikitsa, it's used to address certain issues, whether that's bodily, your knee or your back or something, or whether it's energetic 
or whether it's mental, whatever level it is. But having said that, you can think about yoga in terms of shikshana, rakshana, or chikitsa. I would also present the idea that all of yoga is potentially therapeutic. And I'm going to pass the baton to Dave at this point to, to see, you know, whether you want to pick up on that idea of that all of yoga is therapeutic or whether it's not all therapeutic. Well, I've also been thinking about this today and I have to confess something. I've always been a little bit uncomfortable with the term yoga therapy and particularly the, the, thinking of myself as a yoga therapist. I, I, I've always just felt, well, even now, I just think of myself as a yoga teacher, if I'm honest. And I think, I mean, to answer Ranji's question directly, I think yoga does have a therapeutic aspect, all of it. So, I mean, if we look at the Yoga Sutta, for example, in the commentary to the, the, the sutra on Hyam Dukkumanagatam, you, you know, that, that sutra, Vyasa's commentary, he, he compares the teachings of the Yoga Sutra with what might be presented in Ayurveda as dealing with the problem, the the, the cause, the, the goal, and, and the means. So in that sense, even in, in the classical text, you could say, that all yoga is therapy because it's seeking to reduce dukkha. So I think there is a qualitative difference to when I teach a group yoga class and when I teach an individual. I mean, I think at the end of the day, that is the biggest thing. And when I teach individuals, I try and meet them where they're at and to address those concerns, which, you know, they have, and most of us have some concerns. So in that sense, I think whenever you teach people individually, and you really seek to apply yoga to them and their needs and to you know work with what's important to them to me that's yoga therapy and and, and just to say something more about this question of yoga teacher and yoga therapy often as i've observed in the the yoga world quite often people do a yoga teacher trainer course and become teachers and then they become go on to become yoga therapists. And I suppose, I mean, I can see the logic of that, but I suppose the way that we were trained originally was such that rather than the therapy being a, an extension of the teacher training, yeah, being, being a, a yoga teacher would encompass the skills to be a yoga therapist because you're basically using the same skill set, but applying that skill set to each individual situation and rather than thinking of oh this is a bad back therefore we need to work with this posture or this you know rather than being a kind of reductive symptom-based interventions we're not trained in symptom-based interventions so much more as applying tools from our toolbox to yeah. each individual specifically and I think I, I think that's really important. I think that's really important. If I could just add something yeah. to that, I mean, we've run what we considered and, and perhaps advertised as sort of yoga therapy courses, and we had people coming from a various selection of backgrounds to to work with us. And what we realised, what we felt at the time, was that actually unless you had a really good grounding in this approach, because this was the framework from which we were teaching, mm. it didn't work so well because actually our application of yoga therapy, if you like, is based on the whole kind of methodology that 
we've been trained in from the very beginning. There might be refinement of, of skills of observation, of understanding of sutra, of techniques, some of which might be specific to particular conditions. But actually, it was much more about meeting the person, working with them, seeing what was important and seeing what's possible, really. I, I, think, I think yoga therapy, to a large degree, is seeing what's possible. I would agree with both of you. Looking at it from the perspective of Krishnamacharya and TKV Deskachar and kind of using the Yoga Sutra as the, the framework, as well as Sankhya philosophy, and having been the president of IOIT, mm. most traditions are not looking at yoga therapy that way. There's usually an eclectic mix of we'll do a module on yin yoga and we'll do a module on kundalini yoga. And so it's much more eclectic. So while I can understand your position that yoga and yoga therapy are so intertwined, we can't even pull them apart if we wanted. I think the larger yoga versus yoga therapy world, that's actually not happening. What would you say? I think that's right. I think, I mean, we've both taught on more eclectic courses and the honest truth is that I remember doing it and, and I found I, I found it kind of unsatisfactory because I, I didn't know what I was giving people, what that was sitting on and what was going to sit on it. Yeah. Whereas I think when there's a more coherent, it's very difficult to talk about this without sounding like, oh, we've, we've got the... Sounding very elitist, isn't it? Without sounding elitist. I, yeah. I don't want to sound elitist. I'm not knocking any other training. I, but I just think from the experience of a teacher teaching this stuff, when you have a coherent spectrum, you kind of know what you're working with. And I feel that one of the beauties of this approach to yoga is that it's just such a broad spectrum. You know, Vini yoga is the application of yoga to the individual in the individual situation. And we have a very broad palette. And I, I, you know, I'm not saying that it's completely exclusive, but it it has so much to offer and and we can fine tune things in a very specific way. And I love that we can move between Chikitsa to Rakshana, maybe into Shikshana because we've had that foundation. And truly that's what our students end up doing. They heal from the low back pain, they want to have a little more fitness practice or something. And then sure. their father dies and now they want a, a meditation practice. I mean, it, it's a seamless flow, but yeah. using all the same tools and the same foundation. So I have a yeah. question for, for David. I have found that sometimes when people come into a, a long-term training, say a two or three year training, they get in and they realize they're going to have to empty, not have to, but we're asking them to empty their cups so that they can get this very cohesive, comprehensive training. And some people bail after a few months thinking, wow, I don't want to start over and and build this building, learning all the yoga sutra, you know, learning to chant. Like I kind of just wanted to add a few things to what I already knew. And so there are times where people feel that this is not the right path because it really is a complete emptying of one cup so that you can allow some new ideas to come in. What what do you think, Dave? Have you had that experience with your longer term trainings? Yeah, for sure. I think when we've accepted students who come from quite different backgrounds, it sometimes it's worked really well in, in the sense that they've been prepared to 
almost do just what you've said. I mean, it's not that we have a monopoly on good ideas, but there is a particular framework from which we work. And I think those people who've really embraced that, it's worked well. And it hasn't worked out for some people. And and again, I, I wouldn't suggest that our, our way is the only way or exclusive way or even in a range of techniques and how we apply them. You know, we, we're the only ones with good ideas. Not at all. But I, I think I think we have a good set of tools, a wide ranging set of tools, a good framework to work with. And certainly it was what attracted me actually to this approach in the very first instance, because our teacher, who was Paul Harvey at the time, could kind of explain why we were doing what we were doing and how this related to that. And that really appealed to me. Yeah. And and I think that's a, a great strength of, of this approach, if you're if you're prepared to as well as I think a lot of frameworks require a certain amount of you have to be a certain way and wear these certain clothes and act this way. And and I just feel like there's even though there's this structure, there's also a lot of freedom to 100 percent be you. Completely. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating yeah. that everybody, we're all individuals. I think Jessica Chow was very clear not to dress like a South Indian Brahmin. I mean, he was, yeah. he didn't have religious paraphernalia. He was very careful about separating kind of religious iconography or whatever from his yoga. So it really was about how do we teach these skills in a way that is coherent with somebody's situation. And it's important not to impose, you know, ideas about how one should be. Okay, so I'm going to play devil's advocate because we we all know that he's also criticized for that, for maybe taking something like the Yoga Sutra and really making it so embodied and so experiential and applicable Mm -hmm. to the point where people sometimes say, well, wait a minute, this has gone too far. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that? Do you do you feel that it's appropriate or I don't know? I, I never really know how to respond to that criticism. Well, I completely understand what you mean, what you're saying about that. And and I I suppose from my point of view, certainly these days, is that I appreciate that there are certain ideas and concepts in yoga which have been in the Yoga Sutra, sorry, which have been radically reinterpreted, yes. you know, in this tradition. And what I often find is that some of the advocates of this tradition, they kind of almost like apologetics for, for this view in the sense that this is how it is. This is the classical interpretation of the Yoga Sutra, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's quite difficult when you look at the all of the traditional literature that exists, the, the, you know, the old traditional literature. There are certain things that have been radically reinterpreted. But... I think if you accept that, I I don't have a problem with it, really. I mean, if we think of yoga in terms of having supports, finding supports that enable us to understand things creatively and to work and apply the principles of yoga in a sensible manner, the Yoga Sutra is a support. And as long as you understand it's being used in that way, I don't have a problem. We've been running a series of workshops which has been going through the sutras with a lot of detail. 
and looking at Vyasa's commentary. And one of the very interesting things that we discovered when, as we've been going through Vyasa's commentary and kind of translating the, the Sanskrit of Vyasa's commentary in our very elementary way, but you can see, you can start picking, yeah. picking it out. And what we've discovered is a lot of the stories and a lot of the teaching of Krishnamacharya and Deskachar and Deskachar students on the Yoga Sutras a lot of the analogies and stories come directly from Vyasa. It's like, oh, that's what, oh, that's where that comes from. That's where that comes from. That's where that, and it's really interesting. I think what Deskachar was able to do was part of the reason why he's been able to kind of creatively mould this text into something which is very digestible for a 21st century palette is because he knew the text backwards. I mean, he, he knew it so well in its traditional form. Now, if somebody's taking the text and then just riffing on it in a way which kind of doesn't respect its original form, that would be more questionable. I think you can see why and how he's made his interpretations. If you understand the Sanskrit and if you understand where he's coming from, you can kind of think, ah, that's how he got to there. Right. But I've seen other texts, which is like, how is this saying this? Because really that's got no relationship to it's an imp- imposing stuff, which I, I don't think Deskachar imposes. I think he somehow. Well, and and he, as we know, would teach to the people in front of him. And what you might yeah. get in the summer of 1997 is going to be very different than what someone else yes. got in 1970 or 2006, yes. right? So we all came out of studying with him thinking, oh, I found, I found the Holy Grail. I, he taught me. And then you talk to people like Paul Harvey and, and the elders of the field. And then you talk to the people who came in the early 2000s and it's like, wait a minute, you, you all learned something different than we did. Indeed. 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 I, I think also one of the things that he was incredibly skillful at is that when you, when you look at some of the more difficult yoga sutras, you know, some of those that, from a sort of very traditional point of view, at least deal with the questions, for example, of, I don't know, Nibhija Samadhi, you know, you know, the sort of the high states of yoga and say the cities also, and, and these kinds of things, which on the surface of it, they, they feel, you know, very far from where we are. I think what Deskachar was really adept at doing is appreciating that actually in that presentation, Although the context of it might be, say, for example, the deep state of meditation, it's explaining a principle about how the mind works or about how the world is or, or about our relationship to, to other people. And once you can identify the principle, then that can be applied and it can be applied into different contexts and also, you know, almost made rather than applying to, to this particular state of meditation, it applies to real life. It applies when you're observing somebody, it applies where you're teaching somebody. Yeah. And it's the same principle, but it's just the context has been adapted. I think he was a master at doing that. I would agree. Yeah. And that's what drew me to this tradition, but also has kept me here. Because there's a seamless thread that goes from I am possibly in a deep state of meditation to I'm observing my student as my object of meditation to I'm noticing very subtle changes in my own system 
you know, in quotes, air quotes, I'm meditating on my own body to know when I'm not well, you know, like those principles just flow through everything. There's it's seamless. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask you, do, do you all think that Patanjali was actually a yoga therapist <laughs> on some level? Well, in, in as much as the Buddha, I think the Buddha, dis, is, am I right in thinking that the Buddha described himself as a, as a physician? I think there, there is an idea that the Buddha described himself as a physician. And certainly the, this heyam, heytu, hanam and upaya, these, this idea of there is a problem, there is a cause for this problem, there's an end or a resolution to this problem, and there's a means to that resolution. That formula, which is basically the Buddha's Four Noble Truths as well, is also the formula used in the Ayurvedic texts. And it's the formula, as Dave said earlier, it's a formula that Vyasa uses in his commentary to, to Sutra 2.16. So would potentially describe himself as a therapist? Who knows, but maybe. Dave, what do you think? <laughs> well, I kind of, I kind of want to say yes, and I feel a little uncomfortable also. Somehow, <laughs> you're turning red. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 um, I think if you understand it in the right context, then yes. But I think you could also take that and understand it in a rather naive way, like, like you know, potentially was some kind of. I don't know. He wasn't fixing. I kind of agree, and I kind of feel a little bit sort of (laughs) uncomfortable also (laughs) with that kind of stuff. You know what I love about that, though, Dave? (laughs) You know, we've learned from Deskachar that the more clarity you get, the more you realize you don't know crap. (laughs) You know, and that just stay open, stay receptive, don't get too dogmatic, and put your stakes in the ground and, and think you've discovered the Holy Grail. Like, to be uncomfortable after all these years of study, I think is the most awe-filled place to be. I, mm. I like that. Mm. I mean, he is addressing Dukkha, isn't he? He is yeah, addressing he is. Dukkha. Yeah, that's, yeah, that you, you can't you can't avoid that. And Dukkha as suffering, as restricted space, as what you know, however you define it, that's the starting point. So how do we move from a from a state of dukkha to a state of sukha? is one of the profound journeys of yoga in and it's in its myriad potential roots in that journey but i think that is definitely what patanji addresses yeah and i think we should also perhaps appreciate that patanjali as therapist is fundamentally dealing with the the mind mm-hmm. i mean that is the scope of the yoga sutra so i i i think sometimes the, the reason I might feel a bit uncomfortable with the idea of potentially as a yoga therapist, does that mean he dealt with bad backs? Mm. And that doesn't seem to be in there as far as I can see. But in terms Maybe if of your the, mind is causing your... Well, your that, that, well that, it, you, that's where it all gets a bit complicated, <laughs> isn't it? So, <laughs> but, you, but you know what, I, I'm sure you understand what I mean. I think in thinking about the Yoga Sutra, it's always good to remember that that what we're dealing with in essence is the nature of our minds yeah you know dave i had this real experience in the last month having been diagnosed with tongue cancer and 
I was kind of in awe that I really didn't suffer. Mm. I had tongue cancer, but I, I was not suffering. And I, I think that's what you're talking about, that the yes. external things will happen. Life will not be easy. Mm-hmm. And strangely, I, I wasn't like trying to not suffer. Mm-hmm. It just happened probably as a result of studying these teachings. I, I was actually kind of surprised. And so have either of you had times like that where things have gone god awful wrong in your lives, but somehow in that moment, your mind was not suffering? I think that, yeah, in fact, I was talking to somebody earlier today about this very thing, about how even when things, when you're feeling shit or or some level, there's always a part of me. I mean, I was saying that I was feeling really shitty recently for various reasons, but there was part of me which wasn't actually, which was also a little bit amused by it, you know, Mm, uh, we I were know. talking about there's part of oneself which could I think there are certain things which might be too overwhelming I, I don't know I mean I am aware that there is part of me which is amused by my own drama I'm with you Ranju I, the day I got diagnosed with cancer it struck me as hilarious because I was I had retired that day two yeah. hours earlier and that night I have, I'm not a funny person. I'm actually a very serious person. The jokes that came out of me were so dark because there was this part of me that found it so hilarious to watch myself in this situation. Yeah. It was, it was really a a cool experience. How about you, Dave? Have you had these times where you, you should be suffering, but you're somehow not <laughs> I, I think I'm a little bit more with Randy I can't say I, I'm not sure I can honestly say that, that but I what I can what I definitely can say is when I am suffering there is a part of me that can see the ridiculousness of it all and the extent to which I create it for myself mm-hmm. and I, I I think if there's one thing if you were to say to me what you know, bottom line, what do you think you, you've really learned from your understanding of, of your mind from studying yoga? It really is the degree to which we create and condition our own experience. Yeah. And that means that we have the possibility of experiencing it differently. And I'm not sure I'm terribly accomplished at that, but I, I can certainly see the possibility and i can certainly yeah i just sometimes it just shocks me the degree to which i create my own suffering you, you know and it, and it is coming from inside and and i think the degree to which we create our own world and our own experience it's staggering actually and it is like the weather isn't it dave i mean yeah, yesterday yeah. i was really in a bad i was in a bad place yesterday i mean it was hay fever but i mean that was doing bad things to my mental state and today it's like a different day it's like the goonies have changed the weather's changed what's all that about i mean you know one is aware of how how transient states of minds can be and how we sometimes exacerbate and always like when you're down you can well you can keep on digging can't you you can dig deeper and the whole thing is you know stop digging stop firing arrows into yourself 
that, that's what you're talking about, Dave, isn't it? The, yeah, the, it the is. Profound realization how much we contribute to our own suffering. Yeah, even to, even to the point, you know, sometimes if I can't, I, I'm lying awake at night and I can't sleep because I'm thinking about things, worrying about things, or what have you. I can see myself, and I can see a part of myself that actually wants to hang on to that. Hmm. And then I'm kind of asked myself, well, why, why, am I, why are you doing that? You know, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's kind of like so silly little things in a way. But I think, I think you do definitely begin to appreciate how we can maintain our suffering and and how we can perhaps let go. And it sounds like you, you've been able to do that in this situation. Fantastic. Yeah. Which, which, you know, there's other much smaller things that have zero significance in my life in five years that I can't do it with. Right? That, that's what was surprising to me. It's like the garbage didn't come on Friday. Let me ruminate for three hours about that. Actually, you know, I was talking to somebody about this. There's a there's a guitarist called uh, Wilco Johnson. He was given a diagnosis of he's basically got a year left. Mm. And he went out on the roads and played all these gigs he said, I've got a year left. What the hell? And he just had this great time, really enjoyed his last year. And then 13 months and then 14 months and then 18 months. And then like three years later, so he's still here. And he and I, I listened to an interview with him and his cancer is now gone. And he's saying he's more neurotic now than he was during, you know, during the period that he was thinking, I'm, uh, this is it. He just let go. It was fine. He didn't have yeah. fear. I can relate. I felt the neuroticism coming back as I was healing and the physical tissues were allowing me to talk. And he, I felt the neuroticism coming back. I was like, whoa, what is, uh, you're, you're coming back? I thought we were done. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I, I have a question. Do you feel, you know, in the early stages of learning how to observe our own minds and watch how we create our own suffering and observe our kleshas and our antarayas, the obstacles, do we need an external guide to, to learn the structure of how to observe ourselves? Or do you feel someone could take something like your your book and just start doing the work and and trying. What do you all think, Dave? Do you have a thought on that? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do have some thoughts on that. <laughs> oh dear, I've got to be a little bit careful here. I'm in danger of stepping into deep your, water. Your but... neck is turning red again. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't know. When I... <laughs> um, You're my object of meditation. <laughs> yeah, it seems that way. So. I think it's very difficult to, you know, to to be a mirror for oneself objectively, and I, I I think the traditional view, and certainly the view that we've we've had in this within this tradition, is the importance of a teacher having the teacher and doing the practice you were given by your teacher. This was paramount, you know, and the relationship with the teacher. Okay, here's the rub, actually. I haven't always been convinced in my yoga journey in what I've seen, that that's necessarily the best thing in the sense that it assumes that the teacher has the the skill, the perception, the boundaries. They need to be a good teacher, and they need to have that ability to be that perceptive. Now, I'm not sure that's that common, right. if I'm honest. Yeah. And so from that point of view, 
then I, I think I, there were times I felt within our tradition that it was more important to have a teacher than what that teacher might be able to offer you. And, you, you know, people would parade that a little bit like a trophy. Mm-hmm. From, from that perspective, then I, I think, well, we, hold on, we need to be careful here. So in a modern context, then I think actually, unless you're particularly lucky, then I, I think often we'd have to be a little bit more self-reliant. And I think that's possible. I'm not saying it's easy, and and I know that's not necessarily the party line, but I I, mm-hmm. I do think it's possible. That's really interesting, Dave, and I'd like to add something to that because I think you've 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 been very honest in saying what you said. I also think that I remember when we were in Madras, as it was called then, in a, in about 1990, I think it was 1998 or something like that, and Desikachar said the future Buddha is a sangha. So he's, which, and he was quoting Thich Nhat Hanh, who was saying that perhaps moving away from the idea of this sort of one extraordinary teacher to emphasizing the importance of our peer relationships and our friends. And I know from my point of view, been working with Dave a lot over the last 20 years. I mean, I think I've learned a lot. I've also learned a huge amount from Dave and a huge amount from, from my own students as well. So it's not just, you're not just on your own. If you've got some grounding, then you know how to learn. It's actually learning how to learn. Mm. And you can learn from your students, your friends, your peers, your partners, and I think it's so easy to just forget about learning and just kind of rely on an external teacher and, and then submit to a teacher. And and actually that's bypassing learning. Sorry, Amy, you were going to say Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there's so few qualified teachers and those qualified teachers must have integrity. Yeah. We're, of course, we're all looking for that, but it it's very rare. If, if you could ever find it and get access to them, because those people are not out parading around trying to get students. So, I mean, it's it's really challenging. And I, I love what Deskachar said. I had never heard that before, Dave, about, or Ranju, I'm not sure who said it, about the, the future Buddha is Sangha. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That was very powerful when he said it. Mm. And I think he said it partly because he saw the problems of single teachers becoming too powerful, I think. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I think there's also a time for us as individuals, and I, I don't know how this translates in the East, but I've I kind of felt that in my own journey at least, and I don't say I've achieved this, but I think there's a time to grow up actually and to sort of almost not hide behind some of the platitudes and, you know, the badges of yoga and and also to take some responsibility for oneself. Maybe that's something I feel as the grey hairs are, are appearing, but I, I, I do think there's a time to do that. One of Peter's things was about incarnation, wasn't it? About incarnating yeah. into who you are. Yeah. And I think it is, I mean, one of the potential drawbacks of being in a tradition is that you hide behind the tradition you hide behind the teacher you hide behind the teachings and it's you're not putting yourself on the line incarnating and i think that's one of the things that peter did and i think it takes a lot of bravery and integrity 
Because if you put your head over the parapet, you will get stick. Yeah, that's mm. true. I think we've we've had stick. We've had a bit, yeah. <laughs> over the years. I suppose everybody's had stick. Yes, we have. <laughs> we have. <laughs> that was that was that was beautifully articulated, Amy. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there was a time in our yoga journey. I, I will tell you this again. We feel like we're exposing all of our, um, our soft underbelly, but there was a time when things were difficult in you know in our, both of our relationship within this tradition. And, and one of the things we, you know, we've been involved for a long time, and we've we've done a lot of stuff. And and I, I just kind of felt, and I said this to Andrew at the time, I felt there comes a time where you you have to stand up and do what you feel is right to do. And I said to him, nobody's going to tell me what I can and can't do anymore. Yeah. And I, I kind of felt that that was a really, for me, I felt that was an important step to take. And I think it's, it was I mean, there, there, yeah, I mean, there's even this idea, you probably heard the idea of Paratantra to Svatantra. You know, mm-hmm. the idea of it's, it's, it's a technique that comes from somewhere else and you have to embody it and, and live it. And, and I think that's a, an important step for us to take and possibly a more important step in the West with the situation we find ourselves in than might have been historically true in the past in the East. I don't know about that, but uh, I wonder about that. So are you saying that there's um, a time in our development, maybe at first we do all the things that the tradition is telling us to do, but there's a time in our development where it's actually our responsibility to come into our sovereign self. And that if we can't take that step to be true and authentic to ourselves, we actually aren't even doing the work here. Yeah, yeah I am. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I agree. Absolutely. hundred percent. And I think we all have it backwards. Everybody wants to be sovereign self at the beginning and then, you know, maybe later become a, a disciple, you know, instead of like learn, watch, listen, experience the framework. And as we grow, of course, we will become sovereign. What do you think, Ranju? I think this also really ties up with the whole journey of how yoga has moved from traditional Indian, Eastern tradition into how it's incarnating now in the West and, 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 you know, the reverence for the teacher, the reverence for the, for, for hierarchy, etc., cetera, uh, is, is much more pronounced and obvious in the East. I think there's a cynicism and perhaps even a contempt of hierarchy within the West. I think there's a fine line to tread between bowing down low, you know, really surrendering and bowing down low and, you know, thinking, well, I've, I'm going to have to surrender something here. That goes against a lot of Western, contemporary Western mindset. But at the same time, how can you do that as a bridge to incarnating mm-hmm. in yourself? And that's a really tricky line to walk because some people wind up bowing down so low that they get their head stuck in the pan. <laughs> and, and And other people aren't able to bow sufficiently to get out of themselves. Mm. So I think this is one of the lines that we have to to walk and navigate to giving birth to a Western yoga and Western yoga traditions. You you know what finally gave me the discernment around that was one of my chanting teachers. I, I don't know what I was doing. I was messing up somehow. 
and and she said, Amy, I am not your guru. I am not the one you're bowing down to. She said, I'm at your service. If you didn't come to me, I, I wouldn't be here to serve you. And that just kind of flipped everything for me. I, I got this idea like, oh, I'm not, I don't need to be dogmatic to her. I don't need to put her on a pedestal, but I do need to respect her. And ultimately the journey is about me, not her. She's of service to me to get to know me, to become more sovereign, to experience embodied yoga sutra, right? That absolutely. And, and so that really helped me. That's After nice. that point, I didn't have any more fantasies about gurus or getting power by cozying up to a guru. Like all that just kind of went poof. Yeah. <laughs> so any any thoughts about that, Dave? It's a great story. I mean, I think it sounds like a great story, and um, I would completely agree. I uh, with, with that. I, I think as yoga teachers, we need to be very careful when we're, whenever we're teaching anything that we remember that uh, you know who who it's about. Increasingly, I, I feel quite uncomfortable in imposing my own views on other people. I mean, Peter actually used this term, which in teaching individuals as as a shared project and more and more i really feel that that is very much what what it's about you know as yoga teachers or therapists we're really there to help the other person and that means we need to appreciate what their needs are and yet we also need to be present and to participate in in that relationship so i think your chanting teacher did you a great service by the sound of it I, I also think something I'm learning as I continue this work is to not be attached to the outcome, to just, here's a structure, it's helped me, try on what works for you, and that's that. Like, I, I don't expect anything. I don't, you don't have to be a certain way or anything. Just see if it works for you, and then that's that's the end of the story. What do you think, Ranju? It's a lot of we've just been literally we've just been talking about this like one hour ago mm. we were talking about how the guna play out in terms of all sorts of in different arenas and one of the arenas you could think of is even your own yoga practice so if you're practicing with like real hard goals and intensity it can be very rajasic it can be you know, you're you're. It's rajasic if you if you've got agendas and if you've got goals and you you can have goals, but you can have goals which you're so glued to that you're kind of not allowing other things to happen. Or you can be very casual and not engaged very much, which would be tamas. And and I think that this approach to yoga, uh, this open approach with curiosity, openness, and good grace to one's own failings as well and commitment this is these are these are qualities of sattva mm. Mm. Yeah. if you punish yourself for failing or punish other people for failing it's just raja it's just it's 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 dosha it ain't gonna go anywhere or, or i even find myself trying to do less of it but i i still do it judging yeah. because they're not doing it the way i think they should do it Mm, who, yeah. who am I to say, right? But there are times when you are, you do have to say, I mean, it's a fine line to it walk. It is a fine line. Yeah. It's yeah. a fine line to walk. Well, 
we're coming to the end of our hour together, but I would like to know more about how people can study with the two of you if they're interested. And I don't know if that's always in person or if you do some things online. I highly recommend that everyone get the book Embodying the Yoga Sutra. As I said, it's my my favorite now. This is the book on the, on the website there. That's the, the the cover, which is only available in Britain. And then the rest of the world has the other the the other cover, which I think you've got, Amy. There it is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We do a lot of online work together, so we have a lot of workshops. If you'd like to join our mailing list, you, you know we're doing workshops on the the book itself the the um, embodying the yoga sutra we're also going through the yoga sutras sutra by sutra and we do chant courses what else do we do dave we do lots of things we we do like most people since the whole sort of lockdown thing we've been doing more and more online and both face to face and online we've got a number of courses study courses i think in the future we'll be doing some stuff on sankhya we're doing something on the upanishads starting in september i think or October and in the autumn. And so all of this is on sadnamalayogatraining.com. Sadnamalayogatraining.com. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you both for coming on short notice to help me kind of create that buffer again when I had my month off because of the surgery. All of the episodes that created the buffer just quickly got used up and so I'm I'm really grateful that I think it was yesterday morning I said, hey, can you two jump in here? And here we are. It's been so, a pleasure. It's been great. It has. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Amy. We could have talked for another half a day, I tell you, Amy. Well, we, we should set up a time. I know prior to me asking you to come on, you know, I had said, can we just have tea together? <laughs> so oh, I, yeah, hope, yeah, I hope we can still do that. And sure. next time I come to the UK, maybe we can. You can sure. get together. I've never been to Somerset. I think I would really you love would like to. It. Glastonbury. Mm, yeah. It's down the road. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. Yeah. I've just finished what I found to be a very gentle and humble conversation about trying to learn the teachings of India and yoga from a particular tradition, which in the the day and age of cultural appropriation, I think more and more people are saying, I want to study in a tradition or in a lineage. I want to go deeply. I want to really learn it from the teachers of India as they've passed it down in the wholeness of the yoga tradition. I think so many people are longing for that, but also acknowledging that there are very few true lineages and even less teachers out there that have been studying for decades that are available to us that have integrity. Like It's like finding a needle in a haystack. And so one of the things that I think Ranju said in this interview, which I, I had never heard before, and I'm very excited about this concept. It's kind of how we have created our optimal state yoga therapy school. So to hear it confirmed was, was really exciting to me. When TKV Deskachar said that the future of the Buddha 
is Sangha, that we cannot probably depend on any one teacher, that we are each other's teacher. And yes, within a tradition, we have teachings that have been passed down from teacher to student. We have structure. We have the Yoga Sutra and all these other texts as interpreted by our teachers. We are part of a long line of people that are passing it like a candle from one person to another to help reduce suffering in the world. And that hierarchy, having one enlightened being kind of at the top of the stack where we all bow down is is not realistic. It hasn't been working for a long time. And a lot of times it's not available to us, even if you wanted to go that route, which many people don't. That instead, kind of using the teachings, and of course, there's teachers involved to create a sangha where we're all having this tapas as a sangha, rubbing up against one another, and then svadhyaya, having some self-reflection from the yogic perspective, and in the end, Ishvara Pranitana, surrender or letting go, knowing that we can't control everything. That's probably the best that we can do in this, this modern age, and to work to build authentic, honest relationships. I loved the many times in the interview when Dave basically said, I don't know what I think, or I, I know I shouldn't say this. I am a little bit of a rebel. You know, he didn't use the word rebel, but I could see the the tapas happening right in the interview. And I think that commitment is what leads to great discrimination along with humility. And I think that's where it's at. Finding a sangha that you can experience the teachings for yourself, find your sovereign self, admit when you're wrong, ask for forgiveness, go back, try again. Hopefully your people still love you. I think that's a very precious, precious thing. And again, it's it's kind of rare to, to find that. But I, I agree with Jessica Chard that that is probably the future of how we are going to be able to evolve spiritually with one another. And that it's very hard to evolve spiritually by yourself because you don't get that tapas and that opportunity to create more self-reflection and eventually surrender. So I love the idea. I'm all in for that. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I, I do think that more and more of us are trying to create Sangha as the teacher, if you will, going forward. It's it's evolving. So thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day and we will talk soon. Please don't forget to sign up for our newsletter mailing list where we give you a free gift every single week. It's usually something that the guest has been talking about, like a book chapter or an article or an infographic. Check out the show notes for that. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget, we have a new YouTube channel called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. We also have a new Patreon page where you can support us to bring you the most excellent content. And that is Optimal State and the Yoga Therapy Hour Patreon page. 
Also, you could write us a review on most major platforms that host podcasts. Give us five stars if you appreciate the show and tell us what you love so that we can do more of that. Finally, we support several nonprofit organizations through this podcast. See the show notes to understand how you can help. If you'd like to be a guest or a sponsor for this program, contact us at the email welcome at theoptimalstate.com. Welcome at theoptimalstate.com. And finally, a special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria and Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.